it was sixth grade. It was right after lunch, and Mrs. White had not made it back into the classroom yet when uh, Beth Atkinson, a uh, somewhat mean girl, though I am sure she has grown out of that since that time, uh, she stood up, shushed everyone, and said, uh, we've all been talking, and we have decided that you, Rob Fawcett, have the biggest ears in sixth grade. And the class immediately erupted into laughter. Now that moment is seared in my brain for a, a number of reasons, but at least uh, three of them come to mind. First, I, I had no idea that my, uh, my ears were that, that big until that moment. And, you know, uh, they're not exactly Dumbo-sized ears, but still, they're, they're pretty big and have only gotten bigger since sixth grade. And were I to lose more hair and perhaps shave my head, they might look really big. Second, for the first time in my life, I was uh, aware that people other than my family talked about me when I wasn't present. Now, I wasn't exactly a shy kid, uh, but I wasn't an outgoing popular kid either, so it was shocking to uh, discover that anyone, let alone a group of my peers, would notice anything uh, about me and would talk about it. Now, that shouldn't have surprised me, as uh, we all talk about other people all the time. In fact, it's probably the center point of most conversations. Still, I didn't think anyone noticed me. Third, my embarrassment was not so much about my ears, and, and I'm not bothered by them now, but rather by what my classmates said about them and what that meant for me socially. What did it mean that they thought this? What did it mean that they, they laughed? What did it mean that she thought it was a good idea to stand up in front of the class and announce this to everyone? Well, we are in a, a series in which we are looking at the doctrine of union with Christ and how it meets several different but related modern lies of identity. And in past weeks, we've looked at the lies, I am what I own and I am what I do. And both those lies, like the one we are addressing today, which is I am what people say, about me are geared at social status and approval and fitting in. And all these, these lies overlap. And, I mean, after all, when we define ourselves by what we own or what we do, it's because we are concerned about what people say or think about us. And as we've mentioned before, psychologists think Upwards of 80% of our identity comes from the people around us and how they, they come up with that number, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but let's just say they're right. For the sake of argument, let's say that's right. That means that, that who we are or how we think about ourselves is shaped by what other people say about us, for better or for worse, or whether it's true or whether it's false. Well, our text this morning is Galatians chapter 3, and believe it or not, Paul hits on these very things really all throughout the book of Galatians, but I think we see this in particular in chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up with verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works 
miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time together mulling on this word and mulling on some real cultural difficulties that all of us faith, face. I, I pray, Lord, for faith in this moment then. I pray that the Spirit would be among us. I pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. And I pray this would be good for us, that we would see who you say we are and in turn live in light of that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the basic idea of the lie, I am what people say about me or think about me, is that whatever people say or think about me is how I really am. So if people think I'm beautiful, then I'm beautiful. If people think I'm ugly, then I'm ugly. So in a, a class full of sixth graders, if a class full of sixth graders thinks I have big ears, then I probably have big ears. And that may or may not be a problem. It, it all depends on, on how they see or interpret my big ears. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Or is it just merely a statement of fact? See, we are inescapably social creatures, and we were designed for community. And because of that, it is impossible to see ourselves accurately or clearly all on our own. Our, our thinking is it's too muddled. It's far too mired in sin. It's far too wrapped up in our desires and emotions and pride to see ourselves as we really are. No, we need other people to help us see ourselves clearly. You know, preferably people who love us and are for us in such a way that they will both affirm our existence. That is, they're glad we're alive. They're glad we exist. But will tell us the not always so pleasant truth about us too. So, for example, as, as some of you know, I'm colorblind. Not fully colorblind, but uh, reds, greens, blues, and browns, and it seems like it's getting worse, worse with age. Well, they can be pretty tough uh, for me, so I'm indebted to my wife to help me see uh, past my limitations. And it's telling. It's telling about my sin and my heart that I will ask her if two pieces of clothing go together and when she tells me no, I will often get frustrated with her because they look right to me and I want to wear them anyway. Well, if I can't see my clothes for the colors they really are, how much less likely my character or my sin or, or the good things about me I mean, who will tell the emperor he has no clothes if not those who actually love him? That's why parents are the most important influences in a child's life, bar none. What they say, for better or for worse, absolutely affects a kid. But still, more often than not, who we listen to, who we gravitate towards, is not, it's not the truth. 
but rather what we want to hear. It's why the question, does this dress make me look fat, is not typically a question in search of a factual physiological answer. Husbands make this mistake all the time, all the time. No, the real question is, am I attractive in this? Do I look good in this? Will this dress bring the right kind of attention to me, or will I embarrass myself? And it's a question in search of what we, you know, the put-upon evaluator in the moment, which is typically a, a husband, think other people, and typically it's other women, will think of our wife in that dress. And so the question is, will this dress get me the approval I want? It's why being nice is our default ethic of what counts as being good. And we, in turn, teach it to kids, and it's a real problem. It's a real problem. When you're nice, virtually everything you say and do is calculated to get someone's approval or to avoid their disapproval. No, baby, you look great in that dress. So it's hard to ever really know what the truth is because few people are willing to say it to our face. And when they actually do say it, it frustrates us. It's why social media was revolutionized by the like button on Facebook. It's a big part of why people spend so much time cultivating the perfect selfie or family pic for Instagram or will do the latest moronic TikTok challenge that will get them tens and tens of views or will keep coming back to Snapchat multiple times a minute hoping for that little dopamine hit of affirmation. So social media is built on the lie, you are what people think of you. And we all know it's a lie, even as we are literally addicted to the dopamine release of looking for something new. Just go out to lunch today and you're going to see it. You will see whole families Parents and children alike staring at their phones. As Henry Nouwen sees it, and again, the whole notion of the five lies of identity, they come directly from him. They're not, they're not my thing. They're his. He says, anger is a natural outgrowth of this lie. Anger is a natural outgrowth of this lie. So if my worth is dependent on what other people say or think of me, then I'm always hunting for affirmation. And when I don't get it, it's not just an attack on my fragile little ego, it's an attack on my whole person. It's why tolerance is no longer about believing people who are radically different from me, whose lifestyles I really disagree with and call into question, have a right to exist and to live. I think they do. Tolerance means now I must accept wholesale whatever identity or viewpoint a person claims to have, or else I do violence to them. It's why it's virtually impossible to have a civil disagreement with anyone these days. To disagree with someone is not to merely reject their idea or their argument or their viewpoint, it's to reject them. It's why churches and families have split over things like political candidates or vaccinations. But there's yet another side to this that is hitting uh, the younger generations in our circles particularly hard. What happens when it's not criticism that a child hears over and over again? You're a dumb kid, you're stupid, you know, that kind of thing. But rather a kid is told over and over again just how special he is, 
or just how talented he is or gifted or wonderful he is with the expectation that he will go out and do great things and conquer the world. What happens if he can't live up to those high-flying expectations? What happens if he's not that special, but rather is two of the worst words you can say in America? He's, I'm sorry to even say it here, he's average or ordinary. Just one more face in a sea of faces. So for some, like kids who've been told they will play college ball despite the reality of their genetics and talent level that is apparent to everyone except their parents, they are in a battle they can't win. As Alan Noble describes it, it's like the people who go to the slot machines in the casinos, pulling that one-armed bandit over and over again, hoping for a different result because they heard about this one time when a guy hit the jackpot, and so they keep putting the time and money in, pulling the lever, hoping for a different result because as everyone knows, you miss every shot you don't take. So just keep shooting, kid. It's gonna happen. I know you're a winner, but what if you're not? What if you're ordinary or average? I mean, somebody has to lose. And for some, coming to accept that reality is unbearable. But for those who figured out way before this that they would never be the star player, and maybe their destiny is to ride the bench or even to get cut from the team, they quit the game altogether because they realized they would never win, so why bother playing? You know, I think part of the great resignation, maybe in particular the epidemic of boys who have grown into men's bodies but have never matured into actual men, can be at least partially explained by this ridiculous, stupid pressure to participate in an inhuman game that even the winners can't win. I am what people think of me. And I'm a loser. I'm a nobody. So why bother? Well, the problem is not that we want to fit in or, or care about what other people say about us. The solution is not, okay, fine, I'm not going to listen to anybody but myself. And I'm only going to surround myself with people who aren't toxic and affirm me no matter what. No, that, that sort of thinking is still predicated on I am what people say about me, and it's a surefire path to an echo, echo chamber, or worse, really to self-induced narcissism where you can do no wrong, and the emperor, though he is as naked as a jaybird, is never told the truth. Welcome to the Internet. No, as you could probably guess, the answer to this lie is found in Christ. Paul's critique of the Galatians throughout his letter is that they had denied the gospel by attempting to live as if they had not received the Spirit. And this was brought out over the particular issue of circumcision. So the issue is not merely circumcision itself, but what these Christians thought circumcision would do for them. As we discussed last week, some Jews had told them that it was not enough to be in Christ. As Gentiles, they needed to take on Jewish customs too. And the issue is, and I, and I really think Grant uh, McCaskill, who I'm indebted to for this series, I think he gets it right. It's not so much that the Galatians were, were concerned to measure up in God's eyes. They, they didn't think circumcision 
actually save them. No, they were concerned to measure up to Jewish expectations. So what do these Jewish people think of me? Their, their opinion really, really matters. And to give a contemporary example of how this works, you know, early, and you all know this, early in the pandemic in 2020, wearing a mask was really only a health issue. But by 20, mid-2021, 20, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask was an issue of tribalism, and it still is. It's not the mask that matters. It's the approval or disapproval over the mask that matters. As you follow the book of Galatians, Paul is very concerned to show that the gospel he preached to them is not from man or through a man, but from Jesus Christ alone. Why? Well, as he says in 110, he was not seeking their approval when he preached the gospel to him. No, he was seeking to be faithful to Christ alone. And he recounts that prior to coming to Christ, he was advancing in Judaism. That is, he was socially advancing in Jewish religious traditions or, quite frankly, Jewishness. And modern people tend to pursue something similar, but it's almost purely economic status. But for Paul... It was a cultural religious status, which meant he was becoming a mover and a shaker. And you see that in the book of Acts. But once Christ was revealed in him, that's chapter 1, verse 16, all of that changed. Paul abruptly stopped being a Pharisee, and in turn, having consulted with Peter and James, who were fellow apostles and, and authorized authority figures, and, and by the way, their views matter, and, and Paul never acts as if what other people say or think doesn't matter. That's not the issue. Well, Paul spent the next 14 years not advancing in Judaism, but preaching Christ. So his social capital uh, among his fellow Jews in, in Judaism was wiped out, just wiped out in light of Jesus Christ. And things like circumcision no longer gained him anything. I mean, what, what could he possibly gain in status? Because that's the issue. What could he possibly gain in status in addition to what he already had in Christ? If Christ is for him, if Christ is literally indwelling him, what can anybody else, no matter what kind of influence they have, possibly add to his life or to his status? In his letter, Paul points out, the influence of the Judaizers and how the pull uh, to measure up to Jewish traditions, and, and I don't think we really understand just how big of a deal this was at that time. Well, it was incredibly enticing, incredibly enticing for men like Peter, who knew better, and yet he still gave into it. And that pull, that temptation to be defined, really to look for approval for, or justification from someone or something else other than Christ, it has, every time, real-world consequences. In the case of Peter, it nearly split a church. So it's one thing to be affirmed or approved by people. We all need that. It's quite another to live for the approval of people. In fact, to do that, if we take Paul seriously, is a denial of the gospel. In our passage, you know, having affirmed that the Galatians have been crucified in Christ, that they are one with him, that they've been atoned for and redeemed and are full members of the kingdom of God, heirs of the promise to Abraham. I mean, he's just heaping up all that they have. Paul asks, you foolish people, who bewitched you? 
So they had been enticed like the fool of the book of Proverbs to seek after a woman whose path only leads to death. That's kind of the imagery he's working with. And Paul asked, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the contrast Paul makes here is of moral agency. Moral agency. Who justifies the Galatians? Is it God? Is he the moral agent? Is he the one active? Or is it the Galatians themselves? Are they the moral agents? Did God give them the spirit through hearing the gospel? Which would mean God was the one acting. That is, God did the saving, the justifying, and the giving of life. And the Galatians, in turn, received it. Pretty much passive in all of that. And, and, or did the, they receive the spirit because they were the moral agents? They were the actors. Or as Paul puts it, because they got the cut. Was it because they used this other means to justify themselves and God said, oh, nice, and affirmed it? The obvious answer is no. No, God did everything. God sent his son. His son in turn did for them what they could not do for themselves. And in turn, the son gave his spirit who indwells them, uniting them to himself. To riff on a, an illustration from the chapter we're studying tonight in the evening service, if a child is standing on the edge of the beach, her feet stuck in the sand, even as the rip current is starting to pull at her, and her father shows up and whisks her away to safety, would the child rightly say, look at how I saved myself? No, and you could ask the further question, what more does she need? The father has her. The Galatians know all this, and they believed it, but they had started living as if they needed to measure up, that they needed the approval of something other than God, or as Paul put it, puts it, that they needed to perfect their flesh. And again, they're not worried about what God thinks about them. They are worried about what the Judaizers think about them, and they think that approval is what really matters. If you are in Christ, you don't need to get God's approval because you already have it, and he freely gave it to you because of Christ. It's why Paul comes back over and over again to what God thinks about these Christians. He loves them, and he delights in them, and why in turn, being in a community of people centered on Christ where the fruit of the Spirit is evident is fundamental to shaping our identities. So we desperately need community, but the community we need doesn't give us new ways to seek approval. It continually points us back to the one who has already approved us. Even so, while there are some people who genuinely think they are working their way to heaven, and in my experience, it's only been cults or really heretics like, say, the Mormons, who I've seen actually really try attempt to do that, our legalism is more like the Galatians. We're not concerned about what God thinks of us. In fact, we're not all that concerned about him at all. No, we're, we're seeking the approval of others, particularly the ones we find influential or cool or popular or whoever we want to fit in with. So, for example, with most of the churches I've been a part of throughout my life, the expectation for Sunday dress was essentially business or business casual. And some of those churches were more strict about that than others. 
I've even heard of some churches where if you were in some kind of leadership, uh, if you were, say, doing, leading something in worship or you know, handing out bulletins or taking up the offering, that, that kind of thing, the expectation was a bit stricter where you might even be required to wear, say, a white shirt and not wearing a white shirt or any other color shirt would be met with disapproval. disapproval. Now, is there anything wrong with business casual? No. Is it godly? No. No. In that sense, is the requirement of, say, a business casual look or a very specific uh, colored shirt any different than the requirement for circumcision at this point? No. So think of it this way. Did God express his disapproval over clothing or did some person. Now, to be sure, clothes matter. You should wear them. And, and what you wear to church or not wear to church can be an indication of your relationship to God, but it won't earn his favor either way. After all, we dress far better than Jesus and his disciples ever did. I think a key difference between the Galatians and us is that in terms of community, church is not central to us. Important? Yes. Central? Probably not. And for many of us, this is simply not the community we care about most. And by the way, that's not unusual in America today. The last 50 years have seen a sea change in how Christians, even conservative Christians, view the centrality and importance of Christian community. And because of that, the pressure to fit in or to measure up to some Christian legalistic standard doesn't have much of a pull on us at all. Not at all. So we aren't in danger of pursuing a, a kind of uh, Judaism, so to speak. So nobody here, I've never heard this, anyone bragging about their quiet times. I've never heard anyone bragging about their, their Christian library. I mean, we don't put last week's attendance on the wall. We, we don't put last week's giving on the wall or, or anything like that. No, I think we're in danger of returning to the elemental principles of the world, as Paul calls it. That is, the legalism of the pagans. The legalism of the pagans. So our struggle isn't really with measuring up against other Christians, though clearly that does happen. No, we care about measuring up with other you know, secular markers of success and status. It's why virtually every lie we have dealt with in this series so far, so I am what I own, I am what I do, I am what people say about me, is really about how American cultural legalism has come to define our relationship with Christ and not the other way around. You know, we are far more concerned with fitting in with some other community or group or political ideology. You know, I'm a Christian, but I really want their approval. They really matter to me. And in turn, we allow those communities and our status within those communities, complete with their values and beliefs and practices, to give shape to what it is to be in Christ. And we, in turn, unconsciously, but sometimes consciously, bring that to this community. The solution to I am what people say I am is not than to withdraw from wider society or non-Christian friends, for example, or what is probably more genuinely the case for us are Christian-ish friends. 
But even as we should not withdraw from wider society, because we're not Amish or monks, and I don't think the Bible prescribes that, it must be said we do well to evaluate our friendships in light of Christ. In particular, the ones we spend the most time with, the ones whose approval really matters to us, and evaluate how those people are encouraging us in Christ. Friendship, like anything else, can either direct us towards Christ or toward the devil. The solution then isn't to ask, okay, who am I? That's what the world asks. And there is no shortage of answers available. The world will not hesitate to offer you an answer based on vehicles, food, talents, gender, race, sexuality, nationality, geography, musical taste, and of course, shirt colors. This is called advertisement. Now the right question is not, who am I? That question assumes that we have to figure it out ourselves. No, it's, who does Christ say I am? How does he define us? Consider again Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. We've come back to this every single sermon. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So if we take Paul seriously, you are not your own. And the life you live right now is not your own life either. You are freed then from the business of justifying yourself or proving yourself or creating your own Tower of Babel. No, you are indwelled by Christ through the Spirit who has approved you through his death and made you his own. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I, I cannot say this strongly enough because we come back to that verse a lot too. Paul is not doing away with distinctions. He's reevaluating them and redefining them in light of union with Christ. So a woman is more than being a mother or not being a mother. A man is more than his job or his lack of a job or the size of his paycheck. It is not a curse to be ordinary or average or a particular race because we are the heirs of Abraham in Christ. It's like what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. For considering, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if Paul were here, he might say, listen, not many of y'all were very smart or all that talented. You certainly aren't all that influential or all that rich. I mean, come on, this is nowhere Alabama. All things considered, there's prettier people out there, people who are a much better follow on TikTok, 
but God chose you all the same. And saying it that way is really insulting. It's really insulting if you're not indwelled by Christ. But if you are indwelled by Christ, it's not merely the truth, it's beautiful. It changes things. With Christ, you see, you don't have to be extraordinary. You don't have to be unique. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to be a star. You don't have to post videos to get people to love you. You don't have to get the Oxford cloth button-down approval. You don't have to take on the demeanor of a redneck good old boy or a snob or any of the, the stereotypical cultural types of our day. You don't have to be popular. And by the way, to be popular is to be enslaved to what people say about you. And in turn, to remain popular, you have to live out whatever people think is cool. It's exhausting and dehumanizing. There's a real sense of which we should, we should pity celebrities. In Christ, you don't have to maintain your status among whoever the popular kids are. You're free from that. In fact, it might actually be a good thing if you take Paul seriously to be identified with the low and the weak and the despised. You are not what you own. You are not what you do. You are not what people say about you. As we're going to see next week, you are not your worst mistake, nor are you your greatest trophy. It is not what other people think of you that truly matters. It's not their approval that will make or break your life. It is what God thinks of you. And what he says is that Christ is in you, and you are in him, and that is who you are. So may we be a people together, a community shaped by that reality in Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this grace, this mercy. Thank you that you are the transcendent divine one, the one who made the heavens and the earth and holds everything in the palm of his hand, yet you have chosen to come near, not just near, but to indwell us through your spirit. There's no greater gift there's no greater status. There's no more approval we need than what you have given to us in Christ. Thank you for this blessing. We pray this in his name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen.